I would retire happy from the army if I could get rid of energy drinks. But I know that's not going to happen because I have read somewhere that the Department of Defense is the world's largest buyer of Monster. They buy like 3.2 billion cans of Monster a year. That's what I read from like procurement documents. But one of the things is, is it's all about education. And when I was at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, we had this awesome research team. She actually is also a Brown University alumna. Her name is Dr. Amy Adler. She spearheaded this study in an entire army division. So we're talking like 2000 soldiers and basically found correlations between two or more energy drinks per day and at-risk measures using clinically valid questionnaires for PTSD, anxiety, depression, aggression, fatigue, and burnout. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Quorum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Dr. Allison Brager is a neuroscientist, U.S. Army soldier, CrossFit athlete, and the author of Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. In this episode, we discuss physical and cognitive readiness, naps, caffeine, and the neurobiology of fatigue. We also talk about the emerging research on energy drinks, biologically quantifying grit, and Allison's quest to be an astronaut. If you're looking for information or resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with the desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Allison, thank you so much for making time for me tonight. Hey, it's so great to be here. And uh, it's crazy, you know, having a a pre-brief with you, just how small our our worlds are, you know, like we know the same people. It's crazy. It is crazy. I'm really excited to talk to you because I'm I'm really excited about the conversation that we're about to have. I really want to understand, like, how did you get into neurobiology? So I was very lucky. I went to Brown University for undergrad and they sort of like, them and Harvard sort of started the field of neurobiology. And um, I was lucky in that my professors who taught the neuroscience course there also wrote the most popular college high school textbook on neuroscience. And so it was an easy way to like stay engaged in class. But beyond that, this this is uh, Mark Baer, Mark Paradiso, and Barry Connors, I think. Uh, A few of them are auditory researchers. And one of them I think is a, those cognition work, Mm -hmm. but yeah, like Brown, honestly, like they found a way to integrate neuroscience into every aspect of the course curriculum. You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of like one of those choose your own adventure schools, but at the same time, like I, I was always fascinated by the brain really as an athlete because you know, I had been an athlete my whole life and I was always addicted and I still am addicted to like, pushing my mind to like its furthest limits every day. And I always wondered why that is. In addition to, I do have a family history, a very strong family history of Alzheimer's. So, Mm. you know, it's kind of like a multifaceted answer for sure. Now you were a a division one college athlete. What sport did you play? Uh, So I was track and field. I originally got recruited as a pole vaulter and a 300 meter hurdler. But of course, like, once the coach realizes you can pole vault, um, a lot of pole vaulters transition into the heptathlon or the decathlon because, you know, if you can learn how to pole vault, you can learn how to throw a javelin and throw the shot put. And I will say technique wise, I think javelin is the most technical event out there. I think it is one of mm. the most athletic things you can ever do. And there's a reason why it made its appearance in the uh, original Olympics, you know, thousands of years ago. Why don't you lean into that for a second? Why is it one of the hardest things that you can do? I I think it's uh, the perfect. So pole vault is muscle memory, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like gymnastics. Like there's that mental element of 
overcoming fear. So pole vault and gymnastics are hard in that regard because it's more of mental hurdles and physical hurdles. But with javelin, there's something about like, um, I don't know if this is a technical term, but I call it like kinesthetic awareness of knowing exactly where your arm is in, in space and time and the angle at which you throw. And then you have to take into account the wind because obviously you only get a mark if the javelin sticks into the ground. And I don't think people realize how difficult it is to stick the javelin into the ground. It, it is actually harder than it looks. Is it because it could hit the ground and skid and it doesn't have the entry of angle into the ground? Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of times, like, I feel like, again, I was a heptathlete, so I didn't get recruited as a, a javelin thrower, but um, I feel like it took me three or four months to, like, not have it skid and, hmm. like, actually puncture the grass. But what's funny, I actually have, like, the physiological makeup for a good javelin thrower because... I have, I always say I have stuffed elbows, but I really have like <laughs> super jointed elbows. Oh, so like, wow. like one of the more common injuries to javelin throwers is uh, Tommy John elbow because yeah. of that force. And like, I think that's what gave me the, the mechanical advantage, right? Is because I already have like that weird bend in my wow. elbow that like I don't have that extra like torque. Yeah, the whip coming out. I mean, you're able to torque a lot on that. That's pretty wild right there. Uh, yeah. For everybody who can't see, she has this pretty gnarly tattoo. What is the tattoo of? What is that? Oh, I have lots of tattoos, but this is um, my tattoo symbolizing my time as a postdoc. So uh, <laughs> I started getting tattoos actually when I was in college. It was like our track team initi- initiation. We, um, uh-huh. the, the female uh, track and field athletes, we got... Um, the brown bear paw print and underneath uh, MFA, which was our track team's motto. It stands for uh, mother effing attitude. Um, <laughs> if I could say that on the air, but uh, so I just started this like tradition of getting tattoos. So mm. this is from a mural right near my house. It actually, uh, where I did CrossFit, like where the turnaround was for the 400 meters, there was that mural right there. And it says, trust your struggle, which I think mm. was like pretty like reminiscent of your postdoc, right? It is because yeah. like, you know, you have to do a postdoc in order to advance to the next stage of your career. But then you like spend five years in limbo wondering like if you're going to have a job or not in four years, you know, it's like. So you learn to kind of lead into ambiguity and, and not knowing what's coming next. What do you attribute your ability to do that to? I mean, honestly, I think it really comes down to like trust you know, and that's why I got this trust your struggle is I had a really awesome CrossFit coach when I was in Atlanta. Cause that's, that was like the pinnacle of my CrossFit career, right? Like mm. I, I went to the CrossFit games on a team. I competed in regionals and we had this coach and I still like abide by this philosophy to this day, which is like, be patient, trust the process, hold the vision. Hmm. And I, I think it's just like, you knew, you know, as a postdoc, like working with that particular individual and like honing your craft, being an expert or having some new scientific discovery. Cause I think that's like, you know, this, that's sort of the, uh, the goal of a postdoc, right. Is to claim your territory in your field of expertise. And usually as a postdoc, like that's when you have your most seminal paper published, And so I just, yeah, I just trusted the process and hoped that hard work would pay off based on the network of wonderful humans I met. And eventually it did because these wonderful humans like got me connected through the army, through a fellowship. And now I have like, I truly do have a dream job. Let's go back to your postdoc. What was your research in? So I um, have always been um, sort of a hybrid of doing sleep and circadian rhythms research as a postdoc, it was still mostly animal models looking at like transgenic mouse models. And then towards the end, I started transitioning into human research with athletes. But I guess my seminal paper, which it was actually kind of gratifying a few years ago, the uh, keynote speaker of our annual sleep conference, like touted this paper as like one of the 
the more like recent and groundbreaking sleep discoveries. So it's nice to like have Congratulations. That. Yeah. Um, so basically uh, my team and I, we discovered a um, protein in skeletal muscle that has the ability to regulate recovery from sleep deprivation. So it's sort of challenging the central dogma that sleep is by the brain, for the brain and of the brain. And this protein factor is actually one of the major components of the circadian clock. So without the expression of this protein factor, it's called BMOL1, the clock doesn't work. It, it's arrhythmic. So um, the superchiasmatic nucleus yes. would be arrhythmic without this protein and skeletal muscle. So I should clarify that when you have whole body knockout expression of this protein, the animal is arrhythmic. Okay. When it is targeted and knocked out in the brain, it is arrhythmic. But when it's knocked out in just the muscle, the activity is dampened, but the rhythm is still present. Okay. So, so what so does that tell you? So basically what we did is like we found like targeted roles for this protein in both the brain and skeletal muscle. And it just so happens it's targeted role in the muscle has an impact on actual EEG. So that's the thing. It's like we were looking at sleep, which sleep is identified through brain activity in a mouse, much like it is in a human. That's something we weren't expecting because we had these transgenic mice in brain and muscle. And what was cool about this model is you could manipulate it any way you wanted. Like you could knock it out, you could overexpress it, you could temporarily turn off the protein expression and then turn it back on. Like every time we manipulated this protein, female one protein expression in skeletal muscle, there was an impact on EEG. And when we did it in the, the same thing in the brain, there wasn't an impact, which is wild, right? Like why mm. is this happening? So for the layperson listening here, like what, what does this mean to them? Like what, what, what's a take home point? Like, like, let's just distill this down to something very simple. Like what, what, what is this pushing back against? Well, I think it really does show the like pivotal role that exercise can have on actual neuroplastic changes in the brain. Like that is a very deep dive mechanistic approach. Like I don't know if you can argue there's like some therapeutic potential out of this research, but it's this idea that if like you're doing strength and conditioning training and you're like focused on mass muscle building or maintaining lean muscle mass, that that actually has a positive impact on the brain. That's what we see as like, you know. So neuroplasticity, as I know it, is the brain's ability to modify itself in response to the environment. Yeah. So you want to learn a new skill, change behavior. What you're saying is, is exercise actually can impact this in a positive way. Yeah. So I just came back from the second annual um, Society for Neurosports Conference. So this is a research society, uh, a colleague of mine who started out in sleep research like me founded when she took an academic post in South Florida. And like, that was the whole focus of this conference is like taking a deep dive into neuroplastic changes with even moderate to light amounts of exercise. So there is this woman at New York university, her name is Wendy Suzuki, and she has done this like beautiful dose response curve how just 10 minutes of exercise is enough to induce a plastic, like acute plastic change in the brain, which is awesome, right? Because not everyone is a psychopath like me and <laughs> and likes to punish themselves daily with CrossFit workouts. And like, if I'm not in pain on the floor, like rolling around gasping for air, like, you know, so when you say an acute plastic change, okay, so what what is changing exactly? Like what's being modified? So excellent question. I mean, it's it's a systems level, right? Mm -hmm. It's cellular changes, right? So you have increases in brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is like huge for neuron health and longevity. You have changes in 
gene expression. You have changes in like neurochemical systems, particularly like acetylcholine, which, you know, that is a major system of breakdown and neurodegenerative diseases. You have better priming of endocrine factors. I mean, it's like a systems-wide thing for sure. I love this because I think, you know, I don't know what happened. I, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with this, but like I do my best thinking sometimes when I'm exercising and like my phone and I don't know what it is, but like I'll keep my phone near and I'll just all of a sudden these things just start flowing. It's like I all of a sudden start making sense. And I don't know if it's. I'm like that, too. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how what's happening during that time where I'm, I'm going from a hyper focused state because you need these periods where you're not focused. Yeah. Just kind of like on portrait mode, so to speak. Yeah. Do you, do you know anything, like why this is happening? Is there a mechanism? I mean, I've always wondered if like that, like everyone has a different, you know, state of euphoria or like passion that they find rewarding. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's like our version of like the default mode brain network, you know, like, cause they, they say like with the default mode brain network, that's when a lot of these like aha moments and moments of creativity exist. But you and I, like for us, it's when we exercise, it happens to me a lot of times too, when I'm walking, I actually That's one of the things I miss most about living in DC is like, I never drove my car when I was stationed at Walter Reed. I would just drive everywhere. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, I would just walk everywhere. And now here in Kentucky, I have to drive everywhere. And there's just something like walking that provided these like moments of clarity. I I feel like my creativity is going to be stagnant for like, as long as I'm stationed here in unfortunately rural Kentucky, because like, (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't have that like mental clarity I get from walking, you know what I mean? I can't cite the papers and I'm going to butcher this, but I do know that there was a, I think there's a uh, a researcher at Stanford that found like when you're moving forward through like an optic field and your your eyes are moving, that uh-huh. you're able to deal with you can process more traumatic things. You ever seen that thing where people like look at a light like a, a light as it crosses the visual field and yeah. then they'll recall things? And I also believe that I need to find the papers on this, but this was just recently I ran across something else about dopamine and its relationship to moving forward, like running, walking. Is that, have you heard of any of this? I mean, dopamine from like an exercise perspective makes sense, but like in terms of like triggering the optic field and like the, um, what are they called? The ocular dominance columns and all of that. Like that's new to me. I'm going to have to find this. Don't take this for gospel. I got to, whenever I don't know, like I can't cite the author, it really makes me upset. What are you showing me here? That's dopamine. Dopamine? <laughs> That's her left forearm for yeah, all the people out there. This is adenosine. I think those two, this is like to me the neurochemical recipe of grit. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay. So, <laughs> grit, like obviously in my job as a soldier, like it's funny, one of, um, the uh, commanding generals of uh, the training and doctrine command. So they're the command that puts out all the military training. Trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. For for the non-military folks here, he really wants to measure grit. And he came here last year, general Paul Funk. And he's like, can you, can you measure grit? And I truly believe like there is a neurobiological marker for grit. A lot of my work now in humans focuses on single nucleotide polymorphism. So these naturally occurring mutations in the, um, you know, coding regions of uh, genes that create human genetic diversity. And, you know, if you think about grid, it's a, it's a mix of dopamine, right? Like dopamine is the neurochemical of motivation. It is the neurochemical of pain and pleasure. Like Mm -hmm. whether you experience pain or pleasure, you have dopamine release. And then adenosine, so that's what the other one is. Adenosine is obviously accumulates accumulated adenosine in select brain areas during the day can cause fatigue and sleepiness. Like we know that. But adenosine is also the rate limiting factor for adenosine triphosphate, ATP, the powerhouse of the cell. And so to me, like adenosine is part of 
the grit formula, right? Because without the motivation and without this, you know, surplus of ATP, like you're stalling out you can't have grit. So what about adenosine and caffeine? Doesn't caffeine. So that's actually why I got this adenosine tattoo, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah. Why? Uh, so a lot of my research with the army, again, like this all follows like life path, right? Like I got mm-hmm. one because track and field got this because of my postdoc dopamine because I did drug addiction research uh, for my PhD. But uh, when I started working at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, I worked on the um, strategic caffeine dosing studies that have been going on for like decades that um, his name is Dr. Tom Balkin and Colonel Greg Belinke used to do for like years and years. So they've come up with these very elegant caffeine dosing strategies for soldiers. I've read this in the army's uh, new doctrine. Yeah. That, that was all written by us. So that, no way that, yeah. I've cited that many times. Continue. I'm really excited to hear about this. Keep going. Yeah. So we wrote, I mean, I, I should give like Dr. Tom Balkin a lot of credit for this, but yeah. So that's a big focus of like the research portfolios there. And I've realized over the years, a lot of my research has been centered around do- uh, adenosine, whether it's the skeletal muscle project, right? Like we mm-hmm. were kind of looking at adenosine because that's a component of sleep and adenosine levels and the extracellular space influence EEG states indicative of sleep. But with caffeine, like caffeine binds to the adenosine 2 receptor and antagonizes it. So it dissipates adenosine accumulation during the day. That's how mm-hmm. it acts. Is as you the longer you're awake, the more adenosine accumulates within, it's called like the extracellular space. Mm-hmm. And then if you have caffeine, it antagonizes the adenosine release. So, so what does that do for folks? So that's what keeps you, that's why it's stimulant. That's why it keeps you mm-hmm. awake. It's because it's lessening the adenosine, which is altering the EEG, which of course, results in sleepiness. So naps and caffeine are like one of my favorite little, I call it nitro nap. Uh, but yeah, like a little bit of I like, like a, too. yeah, a little espresso and take a 20 minute nap. And it's like, there's a lot of nap shaming out there. And I was so glad that the army put some stuff out there because like, like we have this circadian trough, you know what I'm saying? Mid to late afternoon. And like, there's whole countries that take siestas and it's not because you're lazy. It's because like you have this natural dip in uh, alertness. So like take a nap, like a short nap and you'll wake up feeling better. And then, you know, you pair it with a little caffeine and you'll really feel good. Yeah. So you're not against caffeine. Oh no, I'm I'm a, for caffeine and I'm for napping and I'm for both of them together. So funny you mentioned about the napping stigma because so we actually tried to get um, napping pods in Walter Reed, and of course there's a lot of pushback, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the last thing the military wants to be associated with is napping, and so we took these quotes from senior army leaders, anonymous, of course, and wrote up an editorial for the flagship journal of sleep medicine with these quotes as headings and evidence underneath. And let's just say that like two months later, Walter Reed got their napping pods. How about that? You know, (laughs) we called out some, you had actually one of the authors on the paper. He was, meaning he retired from the army. Like, he, it's not because he like no longer was because of this editorial, right. but he was the uh, former uh, sleep consultant to the Army Surgeon General. So mm. when you have the former sleep consultant to the Army Surgeon General publishing a paper about the benefits of napping, quoting, and debunking these myths of senior Army leaders, change can happen. Yes. You know? You just There's, need to pull the right lever. You need to pull the right political arm. And, you know, that's kind of like what I love about the army is like for us as fatigue scientists, we're going to have way more haters than, than followers. Right. Like Mm. I will spend my entire military career ruffling feathers Mm. and it used to stress me out. I think you're duly equipped to handle that. Yeah. (laughs) So it used to stress me out. Now I'm okay with it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look, like people that make real impacts sometimes have to swim upstream and be uh, be an outsider. I was listening to uh, Seth Godin had a podcast, and he was talking about the pushback on helmets in the NHL. It was like 40 years. The original person that wore a helmet, and it took 40 years before the NHL was like, you need to wear a helmet. Meanwhile, like people yeah. died from brain injuries, yeah. from getting hit. Like goalies weren't, and it was like the symbol of macho. Is it now? You'd be insane not to wear a helmet. Yeah. And so, just because you're early doesn't mean you're wrong. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I had that same <laughs> confirmation bias with so CrossFit now. Like a lot of yeah. us wear grips, and I used to be so anti grips. For like, I, I'm a CrossFit OG. Like I started right at the beginning of CrossFit. So I've been doing that. You mean it like, like uh, straps? Yeah. Uh, no, they're actual like grips, like gymnastic scripts that I used to Oh, wear. okay. And I used to be against it because I'm like, I was, I'm an old school CrossFitter. And like, it took months and months of just shredding my hands. Like they did <laughs> heat grinder. Where I was like, you know what? I'm going to use grips one day. And then I realized that you can actually hold on to the bar a lot longer because it minimizes your time to fatigue. Right. And like, I hate myself because I was, I was like one of those hockey players. Right. But I mean, there's a difference though, between traumatic brain injury and like shredding. CrossFit grips. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I want to come back to CrossFit here in a minute, but before we leave this conversation on caffeine, I know that you have some strong opinions on energy drinks. Oh, yes. Very strong opinion. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, I mean, honestly, I, I would retire happy from the army if I could get rid of energy drinks, but that's not going to happen because I have read somewhere that the department of defense is the world's largest buyer of monster. They buy, I think it's like 3.2 billion cans of monster a year. Wow. Not million, billion. That's what I read from like procurement documents. But one of the things is, is it's all about education. And Mm -hmm. when I was at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, we had this awesome research team. She actually is also a Brown University alumna. Her name is Dr. Amy Adler. She spearheaded this study in an entire Army division. So we're talking like 2,000 soldiers and basically found correlations between two or more energy drinks per day and at-risk measures using clinically valid questionnaires for PTSD, anxiety, depression, aggression, fatigue, and burnout. Wow. That's pretty strong. The animal studies point to, and this is like what, this is what I always tell soldiers, athletes, and I do work with um, the tactical community. I moonlight for this company called O2X max human performance. We provide like tactical education to like government agencies and major police and fire departments. And I tell them like, it's neurotoxic. Like, of course, they're probably not going to do those studies in humans, right? Because that's unethical IRB. If you're saying, I want to study neurotoxicity in humans, right? Right. But I remind people neurotoxicity is premature neuronal cell death due to over excitation of brain cells. Okay. So what is it in energy drinks that's so bad for you besides, I mean, caffeine is caffeine, I guess. Am I wrong? Yes, but caffeine is only effective up until 200 milligrams. So that Mm. is one of the things that we discovered through these decades of army studies. And how much coffee is that? So that's about two cups of coffee. Two cups of coffee is about between 160 and 180 milligrams of caffeine. After 200 milligrams, like that's the ceiling effect. And so that's why in like the new army manual and the other training manuals, 200 milligrams, we say take, if you're doing like a 24 hour mission, that's why you take 200 milligrams every four to six hours as needed. Because 300 milligrams does not work anymore, but it's also those additives. Like if you do like an in-depth neurochemical analysis of like all the other crap in energy drinks, it's like 
glutamatergic, like glutamate overload. And that's what neurotoxicity is, right? Is it's like over excitation of the glutamate neurochemical that causes premature neuronal cell death. And that's what's in energy drinks. And they've shown that in rat and mouse studies, you know, and sure you, you should do the bench to bedside approach. But like, again, I don't think an IRB is going to, yeah, approve that type of research. That is super interesting. You know, it's interesting to me too. You said like the military is purchasing billions of cans of Monster, but with some of these like uh, special ops units, like they can't even give them supplements like cherry juice. Yeah, you know, or whatever. It's like very interesting that you could. Oh my god, I tried. Creatine. I tried so hard to get a um, creatine study approved because. I don't know if you want me to go off on this tangent, but I do go have a for theory about creatine. Mm-hmm. Um, so creatine, you know, basic byproduct of cellular energy metabolism. It's critical for the production of ATP. And ATP, when you sleep at night and you hit the deepest stages of non-REM sleep, that's when you have the biggest like anabolic surplus in ATP that's made in the cell. Like they've done real-time analyses in mice to show the ATP search happens during deep non-REM sleep. So if you sort of have this ATP front-loaded through a surplus of creatine, right? Because creatine leads to the production of ATP, then perhaps creatine could stabilize cognitive performance under conditions of acute sleep deprivation. And that actually has been shown. There was one study done in Canada where they looked at vigilance and and attention using uh, the psychomotor vigilance test. So this like very ecologically valid test of reaction time and um, reaction time under like sleep deprivation. But it wouldn't get funded because there's such a stigma in the army about creatine because, I mean, dare I say it, like soldiers being dumb and taking like you know, working hard, playing hard, partying hard. So like not sleeping, going to the gym, like downing creatine and pre-workout, not hydrating, then going out, partying and drinking, and then having to do like a ruck march the next day. Like that's why creatine has a stigma is because of these incidences where soldiers have had like acute kidney failure. Rhabdo, whatever. Rhabdo or like dehydration because of them being dumb rather than the actual creatine. Love hearing this. You know, I I was in high school in the 90s, okay? Mm-hmm. And so creatine was really hitting it early, mid-90s, and it was expensive. Yeah, it was I like... Too. I, well, I graduated high school early 2000s, but like, yeah, I remember like being a freshman and like creatine was a big thing in 98. Yeah, so I mean like a German creatine was like $70 for like this thing, you know? And like... Yeah. You know, I started using it. Uh, I liked it. My parents were freaked out because of the USA Today articles or whatever that like there were some Oklahoma wrestlers that died. I don't know the whole yeah, story, but I knew that, that, you know, what were they, they doing? Were cutting weight. They were wearing, you know, like uh, plastic suits, and yeah. they, but they were on creatine. And so that's what caused the issue. Right. It was creatine. It was, it was all creatine. Right. And so, you know, I didn't take it again until, you know, I got to college and they're like, no, no, no. You know, at A&M, they had a good physiology lab. And they're like, oh, that's pretty good stuff. And it's, I think it's one of the most researched supplements out there. So I want to shift a little bit here. You made a statement when you and I were talking previously about like, you made this really amazing statement. You said physical readiness wins the battle, but cognitive readiness wins the war. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Funny enough, I was just um, talking to a friend about that today. So a lot of that I think has to do, it, we were talking about it because of the ACFT, right? Like they're on version three now of the ACFT. And I actually had some harsh words to say about that earlier this week for- um, That's the new army physical fitness test, correct? Yes. Yes. The 1.0 version was great. It is a great test of aerobic and anaerobic fitness mm-hmm. uh, because you have the two-mile run and then you have the neuromuscular endurance piece. But now it's like this diluted down version where they took out the leg tucks because the leg tucks were like 
the ultimate like test of athleticism, right? And that's where you had to pull yourself up, hold, and then tuck, right? Exactly. Yep. And so now they're replacing that with a plank and then they're like (laughs) the mile run. You can like swim or bike now, which I understand there's like older field grades who run and walk. But at the same time, like their field grades, like they're not going to be in combat, you know, they're Mm going to be in the tactical operating cell. And if they are in combat, then we're in real big trouble, right? If I'm, Mm -hmm. if I'm on the actual front lines, like, yeah, we're in trouble. But long story short, it's just like, we spent, we've spent millions of dollars to basically not do evidence-based research, right? Like they didn't, the army didn't get what they wanted the first time with the first iteration. And so now they're trying to backtrack and like creating this other version that because they didn't get the findings they wanted the first time. Mm. That's, that's like, if you're saying you're having this evidence-based approach that violates all the principles of the scientific method, right? So what would you have done? So I would have just kept, they did the research to come up with the first version of the ACFT. Like mm-hmm. that's it. And so that's, those are my words of criticism. I was, I basically said like, you meet the standard or you don't meet the standard. And if you don't meet right. the standard, I'm sorry, you can't be in the army. Like this is the standard of the army. This is the future of tomorrow. And it has nothing to do with females because guess what? There are plenty of females like meeting the standard. And I, I'm on this like Facebook group for women. It's called like women in the ACFT. And it's so empowering to be on because there are so many females who initially join like in fear, thinking they will never pass and never meet the standard. And then it's awesome to see months later them meeting the standard. But I say all this because if we spent even like, a microsecond of the amount of manpower, dollars, and forethought as we do on physical readiness, on cognitive readiness. Imagine just like how much stronger of a world dominating force we would be. And that's why like there's a small group of us in our community, like we tout, like we call it Operation Cognitive Overmatch. Like we're, we're using esports now. I have a, t- there's a team, um, we're at like here at Fort Knox, the army esports team. And then we have, uh, an attachment at Fort hood that came about from that, you know, terrible Fort hood kidnapping. But like our team is like, we're leveraging esports and collecting data through the design of esports tournaments to build cohesive teams to increase, you know, esprit de corps and to like boost morale and possibly promote psychological resiliency. Like that's through video that's the games. Future. Yeah. But Explain I mean that's the future. I love so this. That's warfare though, right? Because mm. we're getting away from like hand-to-hand combat. We're getting away from like blasts and explosives. We're moving towards drones and cyber warfare. And you're gonna have soldiers who are pushing a button thousands of miles away, not knowing the destruction that that button push is doing and and how many lives are lost and how much physical ruin is, is happening. And like, just think about like the psychology of coping with that. Mm. You know, there's this great book by Lieutenant Colonel Dan Grossman. He was a, um, a West Point instructor. It's called the cost of killing. And he talks about that is like, as weapon systems advance, there's a greater cost of killing because you don't have that like physical coping of killing another human. There's something that it's a healthy psychological coping mechanism, right? Of like knowing, like, I know we're getting kind of dark here, but like okay. seeing your battle, like die in your arms or like if you had to like shoot the enemy, you know, you did it and you're like, coping with the emotional trauma of it, like right then and there, like you're experiencing it. It's a real visceral response. It's not muted in any way. And when you're pressing a button thousands of miles away, that is a muted emotional response Mm -hmm. that you may never like cope with. And so it just like lingers and hangs on. 
So that's why I think it's even more important now that we focus more on cognitive readiness and physical readiness. I mean, don't get me wrong. Our esports, I'm so proud of our esports team. We have like some of the fittest esports players like in the country. Like, and it's awesome because they'll go to like these esports conventions, right? And like, you know, the stereotype. They're shredded. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the stereotype, right? Like, yeah, the, yeah. playing in Cartman World of Warcraft in Cartman's basement. Like, <laughs> they, they're not wrong, but. Our soldiers are like extremely fit. They're in our CrossFit gym three times a week. Um, our CrossFit team trains them three times a week. They pass their ACFT um, and not just barely pass. They're like exceeding the standard. So, so uh, if we go back to some of the things you said earlier about exercise and neuroplasticity, it would make sense that, you know, if they have the cognitive skills to coordinate things, because, I mean, it does take skill to be able to play a video game and you're training them physically that they should be able to kind of speed up some of these learning processes. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, that's the thing about like esports is like there's this type of neuro, I don't want to call it like neuroplasticity, but this type of network that is exercised through esports that like somebody like me as a meathead like i will never gain like i i see like the level of attention and detail that these esports players like can attend to over like significant periods of time and the amount of information they can attend to and like deconflict information it is just truly impressive like i i mm. love watching them play video games i never thought i'd say that what's your favorite game my favorite like Old school or new school game? New school game. So I I will say I've actually never like played any of the esports games. I've watched them play. Which what's your favorite one to watch? Oh, League of Legends. Because that that's a team thing and they always communicating and they each have like different roles. Yeah. What about old school? Oh, that's easy, Mortal Kombat. Oh, Mortal Kombat, nice. Who's your favorite character? A scorpion, of course. All right. Although no. he he's my favorite. Actually, I should take that back. My favorite character to win uh-huh. is Raiden. Because like I just do that the back back forward when he does the push yeah. thing. <laughs> my favorite character finish move was Scorpion because he would literally rip your soul out. And that was awesome. <sighs> Oh my gosh. I was like, you know, I really liked like the Madden video. I mean, I, I was a football player, so I really enjoyed oh, Madden. Yeah, and, like, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed like the, now yeah. it's to the point where like you could actually teach somebody like the fundamentals of the game through playing Madden. They've got it really dialed in. What do you, what, like, what does high performance mean to you? High performance? That's like a, such a great question. So I think high performance to me is like how you perform under stress because that's really what it comes down to. And that's like what we are looking for, like in soldiers, right? Like when we do our sleep deprivation studies, we're looking at this separation between like resiliency and sensitivity, right? And it's really under stress where these things become unmasked. Like even with the skeletal muscle BMOL one study I was talking about, it wasn't until the stress of sleep deprivation that these changes were the most profound. Um, Mm. So that's what high performance means, means to me. It's like, it doesn't matter until it's game day, right? Like you could practice all you want until, but that's why you'd appreciate this. Did you ever watch the HBO show with Kenny Powers? What was that? I was, I forget, East, Eastward Bound or whatever it's called. But, I did not. But he has this quote, like, I'm, I play real sports. I'm not trying to be the best at exercising. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Like, I, I say that about CrossFit all the time. It's just like, it doesn't matter until game day, right? Like, right. you know, that's what I love about the CrossFit games is like, with everything else leading up to CrossFit, you know the workouts ahead of time and you can practice them all you want. But it's really on game day when, like, they throw in the unknown and unknowable workouts that, like, mm-hmm. that's when shit gets real. And that's what separates the real athletes from, like, the people who just 
exercise all day, in my opinion. Yeah, I like I'm I'm a I do jujitsu. My whole family does. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, you said yeah. that. And recently had a competition. Couple actually, it was last weekend. It was the first one I've been in in over a year, and um, it was really interesting because I don't really get nervous, and I was going up against people that were a belt rank or two above me and heavier, and like I started feeling some anxiety, and I'm like, okay, these people are more skilled and they're heavier. But um, it was interesting because, like, as soon as I stepped onto the mat, I was fine. Yeah. Like, it was, like, it was over with. As soon as we, like, tap, you know, slapped hands and fist bumped, it was it was game on. And it was kind of yeah. like the, everything cleared out. But there are people that stress will, and I've talked about this with other guests, it debilitates them and doesn't facilitate them. Yeah. And how do you train that somebody? separates an athlete. I love that you say that because I think high level athletes, I I tell people this is like, you find calmness in the storm. That's how I describe it. Right. How do you train them for that? I mean, I think, God, this is going to sound like a generic answer because I am like in the field of human performance, but I am (laughs) the like physiological, like biological side of human. Yeah. Make a stab at it. Yeah. But honestly, I think it's just repeated exposure and experience. Like Mm -hmm. same with you, like you figure it out as you go along. And obviously there's that period of imprinting and priming, right? Like the earlier you start in life doing these things, like the more comfortable you become. And it's not like you have to start your sport that you adopt like so early on, it's just like, you have to put your mind out there and push yourself to your limits early on, you know, and that can carry over. And that's what I think. Like I'll use myself as an example. Both of my uncles were professional boxers and I learned very early on. My uncle Jim taught me how to train. Like that's why I'm a psychopath now and still enjoy like rolling around on the floor, gasping for airs because That's how I I was taught very early on how to push myself like mentally and physically. And that like carried on over time. So then when I was put in those situations, like that to me is normal. Like Mm. being complacent and comfortable is, is not normal to me. You know, like I will never be boring. (laughs) That's a quote. I love it. Alison Brager, I will never be boring. <laughs> you know, it's like I I thrive in chaos. My nickname for from a lot of people is well from South Park. It's a reference, right? The Professor Chaos. I am Professor Chaos. <laughs> so do you think this will serve you well? I mean, I, I know that you're an army astronaut applicant. Yes. Um, going to Mars. Hopefully. Would that be something would yeah, I mean, hopefully it happens, but I mean, like, that would be an unknown. Yeah. What excites you about that? I mean, just the unknown. So I've been, actually, the department chair where I did my postdoc, he, like, he put it very um, accurately. He's like, you know, you kind of remind me, <laughs> so it's such a weird reference, like, you kind of remind me of Magellan, like, you just you're somebody who likes to discover things and like, you don't care about like the fortune and the fame. You just like to discover stuff. And and that's why I love being a scientist, right? Like mm-hmm. that's been the hardest part about this job and recruiting command and why, why I love being in the classroom. And I love like being a role model for the next generation at the same time. Like I love keeping my hand in the research pot, even if it eats into all my free time. Because I just love discovering stuff, you know? And so that's really what it is, is like, I want to go someplace that nobody else has gone. When I was in graduate school, I used to help a lot of the ecologists with their field work in Costa Rica because I I went to Kent State for undergrad or for graduate Mm. school. And so they like had, they, they own land there. And so like, it was so cool to go in this like protected wildlife area where I had been told that only a hundred people like had ever been in. So Mm. yeah, sure. There's like indigenous tribes, right. Who like migrated through there, but that was so cool to be like, (laughs) 
knowing I was one of the few people who could see what I saw, you know? Yeah. And it's the same thing with Mars. Like people have asked me, like, would you do the one way trip? I'm like, of course I would. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if I could be that person who dies in outer space, like I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I might have a shorter life, but I died in outer space. I think I did okay for myself. I love your attitude. You know, I mean, you're, you're everything that's great about America. Comedy. No, I mean, it's, it's everything that's great about our country. It's everything that's great about the army. It's everything that's, it's just, I love it. You've got such an amazing story and everything that you're doing, you know, from the neurobiology of fatigue to getting people to perform better, to working with esports to trying to go to Mars. I mean, it's pretty stinking amazing. And I'm I'm just really thankful that you decided to come on with us tonight. I know you're still on sure. base and it's just like, it really means a lot that you would spend some time with us. And I want to have you back. So right. um, we're going to keep this conversation going, but thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, again, I didn't do this alone. Like it really took a village to, to help me get here. Um, you know, just surrounding myself with like people who are better than me and one who are an empowering, but also better than me. Like I literally, all my friends are freaking badasses. And whether it's in like CrossFit or science or just life in general. And like, I spend my days getting my ass kicked by people who are better than me. Like I Mm. believe in the principle of iron sharpens iron for a reason, because when, you know, I, I, I don't want to call it like learned helplessness or like social defeat, but like, you know, I somehow found positivity and like getting my butt kicked, but that's the, that's the type of mentality it's going to make for you to get to into the program and into outer space. And I think it's going to serve you well. I mean, you've been researching what you've been researching because there's a seed inside of you that you want to grow. And, you know, I, I admire it a lot. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty freaking fantastic. I'm so glad Andy. Oh, Andy. Andy. Yeah. He's, uh, I'm going to have to text him now. I realized I forgot to return his text. It's so rude yesterday. So I'm going to have to text him and be like, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I'm appreciative of you and thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the blueprint podcast. If you found this episode valuable, Sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high-performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.